Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week's guest is Sadhguru. Did you enjoy the show, Jen? Yes. Well done. Sadhguru is a yogi, a poet and a teacher who translates ancient wisdom for contemporary minds. His star sign, did you look up his star sign? No. What kind of research do you even do on this show? If we don't know someone's star sign, their spirit animal, how are we supposed to understand them? How are we going to get the essence of them, Jen? Sadhguru established Isha Foundation, a non-profit volunteer-run organisation operating in more than 300 centres and supported by 9 million volunteers worldwide. 9 million, what is he then? Virgo, your favourite. Ooh, sexy. <laughs> but what about, um, no, I mean, he's, is he a hermit crab like uh, thou? I don't know. Because you need to know his exact birthday. And so it doesn't go back that far, does it? I'm looking it up. You want it, Demire. What a team here. We've got a crack team of people finding out the star signs of all our guests. Nine, did you hear that? Nine million volunteers worldwide. And a social out and social outreach initiatives to, you know, uh, dedicated to addressing all aspects of human well-being. So we're going to be. Ha it was a wonderful conversation. He's a, a illuminating and brilliant man, and we'll be uh, getting into that chat in a minute. But here's some comments from the last show with Tim Minchin, Gen Seven. Go. I really enjoyed hearing this podcast. It's a perfect example of two people with different views finding common ground. Two beautiful minds or soulful spirits. I feel very like Tim Minchin, someone I could be in a family with. There's just enough tension. <laughs> McLeese, two thousand and two. I love this podcast. It's your differences that made it interesting. Loved hearing both perspectives as I'm still trying to work it all out. Well, I'll tell you the answer. There's a God and you must do as I say. The last one, Claire.Nyroganics. I didn't understand most of it. <laughs> <laughs> but I could sense it was great. So I shall listen again and again. Thank you. Well, Claire.Nyroganics. I think NYR Organics, I reckon that is. Thank you for saying that. And... Uh, you're an absolute treat of a human being, Claire. And have a quick listen. And if you need me to explain anything more detail, you can email me at, uh, you know, on my website. Sign up for my mailing list. Joey Salad 77. What a combination. Double the wit, double the fun. Yes, me and Tim Minchin, we are a glorious dream team. Anyone got anything to add? Have you got anything you want to talk about from the week or anything? Um, Shouldn't I be saying follow me on social media? Yeah. Follow oh, me on social media. Have a look at my YouTube, YouTube video. Yeah. <laughs> Have a look at my uh, YouTube channel. Look at past episodes of Ponderland. Look at a past Christmas Ponderland. Look at a past episode of Ponderland. Christmas Ponderland. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. What's your favourite bit? I don't know. <laughs> well, yes, you do. Don't try and act all cool. Jenny May ran the fan site for Old Russ when she was 12 years old. She absolutely loves me. She acts like she's cool, but she thinks I'm really, really great. That's the fact. It was more of like a song. job. A job that you didn't get paid for, Jen. That's a hobby. It was in training. Turns out you were training yourself. And true to form, you trained yourself badly. No. Like you've done every other aspect of the job ever since. Now, if you want to uh, go on Twitter, you can. Demaya, what are you saying? You need to come to the mic. Oh, come sure. Get on the mic, Demaya. You've been working in a media organisation for a month now. Hello. <laughs> what have you got to say about Sadhguru's spirit animal? Well, basically, it's it's a corgi. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, we're doing... <laughs> we're doing... Um, we're That's doing the most Jenny's ever laughed. <laughs> ever. We're doing some Instagram lives as well occasionally. So like oh, yeah, we're doing some Instagram lives. I'm going to do meditations. When am I doing them? Monday. Mondays. Mondays, Mondays yeah. at 7. At 7 p.m. And am I doing anything else? 
Who knows what I'll do? I'm so crazy. The Maya, that was brilliant. Well done. That was very professional and excellent. I've got some news about Seguru. He's a corgi. And then that was that. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, we'll have a listen to Sadguru now. A great man, a great teacher, and as we've just learned, a corgi. <laughs> Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Good morning, Sagaru. Thank you so much for joining me on Under the Skin. The first question, sir, that comes to me is... Do you, uh, you want to, to go only skin deep or further? Huh? I would say we get right down to the marrow. <laughs> <laughs> do you think it's the role of uh, somebody on the path to change themselves to fit in with the world or to change the world? I ask this mindful of us being in a time that seems to be ubiquitously in crises. See, uh, this is a fundamental question in the world. Should the world shape human consciousness or human consciousness shape the world or the society, not the world? World need not be shaped by us. The human societies, should, be, should it be a consequence of human consequ uh, consciousness or human consciousness an unfortunate reflection of the societies in which we exist at a certain time? Well, unfortunately, it's become like this. The societies that you live in, the geographic areas that you live in, and the generations that you live in, unfortunately, is shaping human consciousness for too long. When we utter the word spiritual, it essentially means this, that you are not shaped by external influences, but by the nature of life itself. So the shape of what this is, is not about a reflection of many complex situations in which we exist. These complexities in situations have happened mainly because we have not realized the full potential of what it means to be conscious. So, whether we want to be a conscious response to everything that's around us, or want to be a compulsive reaction to all that happens around us, is the essential question that you're asking. I think the answer is very obvious, isn't it? Yes, and it also seems to me that we are occupying cultures created from our collective and indeed individual unconscious as opposed to conscious experience. I see evidence of primal drives in greed, in the way that we organize our economics, Lust, the way that we organize marketing, advertising, and the way that we interact sexually. How, without some deep investigation into the individual unconscious and the, and the social unconscious, are we to mobilize and change society? And is it our duty to do that? Or ought we to continue to further excavate individual spiritual territory? So this is like asking, suppose there is a... there is a flowering plant, let's say, because you're in London. Are you in London still? Just outside, yeah. <laughs> so, let's say there's a rose plant. If you nurture it well, it'll come out with rose flowers. 
So is there a decision that we need to make that the rose flower, should it make the atmosphere beautiful and fragrant or not? There is no such thing. When an individual blossoms, he will make his atmosphere beautiful. To what extent? Depends on individual skills, what will be the reach of that person. And it's also about the times in which we live. If we were born here a thousand years ago, would you and me be talking from Tennessee to London? Would that be possible? No, you would be talking locally there, I would be talking locally here. But today, we can act in different ways. So how we act in the world is not entirely ours. It is the times which enables us to act in a particular way. But what we are and what we exude, will it transform the world? Definitely it does. There is no such thing as society, it's just a word. It is only individuals which are the reality. But unfortunately, human beings, instead of being beings, you know, we are the only creatures on this planet who are uh, referred to as beings. That means we are supposed to know how to be. <laughs> how far away are we from that as a human... as a generation of people? Every other creature is there. They are all... their way of being is fixed by nature. That is, their responses to what happens to them is all fixed by nature. Instinctively they respond and they manage to survive and live. Because the goal of their life is essentially survival. If their stomach is full, their reproductive needs are taken care of, they are complete, they don't aspire for anything else. But once you have come as a human being, there's an endless aspiration to be something more and something more. If you really look at it, how much ever you become, still there is something more. So this something more is not for all... for more things or more stuff as we are uh, addressing it today, because you mentioned marketing and lust and stuff, all these are different expressions. The longing within a human being is to expand limitlessly. You cannot stop this. With all kinds of pacifist philosophies, no, no, God wants you to be content with what you have, this, that, all kinds of philosophies, but you've not been able to contain it in a single human being actually. Only it works when you're sick or when you're very old. <laughs> Otherwise, if there's little energy coursing through your veins, you want to be something more, you want to do something more, this is a natural uh, consequence of being human. Because for every other creature, nature has fixed two lines within which they live and die. For a human being, there is no top line because you have the necessary intelligence and access to consciousness, whether individuals access it or not but you have access to that dimension which we refer to as consciousness, that you can become a boundless creature. You are... that is why you are a being. You are not another creature, you are a being, that means you know how to be. If you know how to be, will you naturally transform the atmosphere around you? Yes. Actively or passively is... is an individual choice, how actively you want to do it. But if a flower blossoms, Will it transform the atmosphere? Definitely it will. It's, it seems from what you're saying that you consider the priority to be the inward journey and to trust the inevitability of organic environmental chain, change as a kind of byproduct of that. I suppose what I'm querying, Sadhguru, is the 
abdication of social responsibility that I associate with modern New Age spirituality, which seems to be emulating the cultural individualism of Western countries, for the, for the sake of sim simplicity, uh, in in its in other forms, i.e. Whilst I recognise that society is to a degree a construct and the only thing we're certain uh, of the reality of is our own subjective experience, do you not feel that part of our awakening in service of this authentic connection to consciousness is a kind of creation of harmonious environments and systems that may challenge the existing order by design or, or just by happenstance? See, when you say the word New Age, you must understand age is related to the body and material things in the world. When you talk about spiritual dimension of a human being, it is not subject to age or time. So if what is a timeless process, if you try to fix a time, obviously people have arrived at a certain set of values or ethics or no ethics, or reaction to societies in which they exist, or some philosophy of their own. Spiritual process is not a philosophy, it is not an ideology, it is not a scripture, it is not a religion. It is human longing to be more. And when you realize little more is not going to settle you, you want it all, then you become spiritual. So. Right now, most people's understanding of spirituality is, they think spirituality is a kind of a disability. Spirituality is the greatest empowerment. When you realize your empowerment, you doing the best that you can do in the times in which you live is a natural outcome. I am not saying, I am not looking at life as inward development versus external uh, impact. If inward development happens, genuinely happens, then external impact is unavoidable. You will naturally do the best that you can do. Because essentially, in reaction to society in which we exist, human beings are going through various types of sufferings within themselves. Because of the fear of suffering, people curtail their lives and weave philosophies, how you just mind your own business, don't touch anybody else, just be happy, pray to God, look up, look down, do whatever, and be well by yourself. This is a philosophy you are weaving just to... you're building a cocoon so that you're not touched by anything. What you're doing is you're... you're... you're, you're just buying an insurance against life. You're... <laughs> you're essentially making sure you don't experience life. Spiritual process is uh, an exploration of the limitless possibility of what we can be. In this, there is no philosophy needed whether, we'll, whether you will do something for the world around you or not, because it will inevitably happen. How powerfully it will happen, as I said, it depends on individual competence, it depends on the times in which we exist, the social situations, many things are there, all right? It depends what is the focus of the world at that given time, all these things will impact how much impact. For example, no, I will take the examples which will be very controversial and uh, trouble, both for you and me. Like for example, Krishna, a tremendous being, most people don't understand the 
the complexity of his life because they think he's just one god that you worship. No, as a man, very, very complex and active. Active to a point, if a war happens, he's engaged with that also, all right? But how many people does he get to speak in his time? Only one guy. And that guy has hundred questions for everything that he says. Well, a Buddha was little more fortunate, he cultivated his around... you know, time... you know, atmosphere around him and he got to speak to a few thousand people. Uh, this is only twelve people, that also one guy freaked on him, all right? It is only today that world has come to a place, there is substantial time for human beings to suffer, I'm telling you. Because all these years, human beings were just largely engaged in survival activity. If you are a farmer or a hunter or whatever, whichever way you survived, your entire day was involved in that, there was no time to sit back and suffer. It's only now that your food is well organized, your survival is well organized, as societies become more affluent, suffering is going up immensely. Only now people are realizing how much suffering they are capable of. Otherwise, you were busy from morning to evening, you had no time to suffer. Now you are... you are left to the means of your own intelligence. And the sharper it is, the more hurtful it is for most people. So, this is happening, so this is the best time. And this is also the best time because of the technological possibilities that you have, because this is the first time in the history of humanity, you can sit in one place and address the whole human population. This was never before possible, let's not underestimate this. This is the time. If at all, if you want to bring about any transformation, this is the time. If we don't do anything about it, it just shows that we are not concerned. We are simply not <laughs> concerned, because never before this was possible. Many, many great beings have come, but when they spoke, hardly ten people heard them. This is the first time, so it's very, very important the right things go out, out there. I must tell you why I... you know, like, uh, you might not even have heard of me ten years ago, but suddenly why I'm so much visible on the technology. This was about probably 2003 or four, somewhere around that time. I was in the United States and uh, we were working in the office and somebody told me, Sadhguru, uh, every day about hundred thousand people type out the word spirituality. I said, is that so? What... what comes out on this, if you type out the word spirituality? I said, type it out. They typed out, the first thing that came out is a spa in Mexico. The second thing that came out is a call girl in Northern California. She's learned the SP... what that? SPO, whatever. She's using spiritual this, spiritual that, whatever to market herself. And she pops up number two on the spiritual agenda is her. Then I said, this is a shame. When you have a technology that you can reach the entire world, is this what we are doing with this, uh, you know, this technology? And then these guys who are supposed to be some kind of experts, when I inquire, they tell me. Uh, I ask them, everybody is, you know, on the net all the time, what are they looking for? They tell me, Sadhguru, seventy percent of the data is pornography. I said, what? Seventy percent? Then a few people, few more people I asked because I couldn't believe this, they say, yeah, Sadhguru, it's somewhere around that. I thought, this is a crime. Since then, I've been loud and clear on probably from 2008 or 9, we've been making so much noise 
So that some people think, why should a spiritual person make so much noise? Can't he just sit in a cave in Himalayas? It is like, if everybody's thirsty and starved out, and I have water in my well, I think if I don't get on top of my roof and scream to everybody, there is water here, I think it's a crime. I don't want to be accused of that crime. Yeah, I understand. With the uh, increase in suffering that you equate with an increase in leisure and the natural parameters afforded by biology and intention by animals, it suggests that a kind of replication of our anthropological conditions may in some part alleviate our suffering. I'm not suggesting a Luddite or nostalgic reach back into pre-technological times. I'm suggesting an honouring of social systems for which we are evolved if we are unable to keep pace with our urbanisation and uh, centralised populations and with it centralised power. When you say, Sadhguru, about the spiritual life being an expression of an organic, innate and perhaps fundamental yearning that does not require an ideology or a philosophy. How then do we organise a practice in order that we may service this state and benefit from this state as opposed to suffering from it? Otherwise, I shall have to go to a spa in Mexico or number two on that rather inauspicious list that you've presented? See, uh, we are thinking our problems are coming from the world in which we live. Our suffering is coming from the world in which we live. No. Anyway, because you uh, talked about, uh, you know, uh, rolling back our anthropological situation, well, you see all the movies, uh, the Hollywood movies which talk about the future, you will see all the men and women are dressed in tatters and they're carrying swords, maybe made of laser. It, it's all going back five hundred thousand years or some of them even further. So they're seeing the future like that because they believe that today's world of convenience is the problem. See, never before in the history of humanity, as individual human beings, have we known this level of comfort and convenience. And now we are suffering that. But that's not the truth, we are not suffering that. What we are suffering is, most human beings have not learned how to handle their own intelligence. If you take away half their brain, believe me, all of them will be peaceful. No meditation, no nothing, nonsense will be necessary. The problem is, the evolution has put you to a place of a certain level or certain dimension of intelligence and certain dimension of cerebral activity, that is what human beings are suffering. If they had the brain of an earthworm, they would be very peaceful. So essentially they're complaining about the evolution, they want to go back. This is what anthropological rewind means. No, that is not the problem. The problem is this, as societies, most societies unfortunately, have taken to uh, <laughs> this, um, you know, because of dominant forces. See, the European uh, cultures became dominant in the last four hundred, five hundred years. In this dominance, everybody started thinking their way of doing things is the best way of doing things. Entire world's education is now structured around this kind of thought process. 
What I'm trying to say is, we have given too much significance to one aspect of human being, that is his thought process. Your thought process is a consequence of the data that you have gathered. How did you gather the data? By seeing, by hearing, by smelling, by tasting, by touching, these are the five means. The five sense organs are the means through which you're gathering data. How much you're exposed to in your life, how alert you are to your senses, accordingly different human beings gather different volumes of information or da data. Based on this, a complex churnout of permutation and combination of thought process will happen. Essentially, your thought process is a recycle of what you have already gathered, but it's coming out in so many different forms, it looks like something new is happening. But in, in essence, it cannot happen because it is just like programming a computer. You put a certain amount of data into the computer, it will turn out so many things as if fantastic new things are happening. All it's doing is just permutation and combination of the data that it has. That's exactly the nature of human intellect. But there are other dimensions of intelligence which have been completely ignored by Western societies, and today the entire world is following that model, well, we are paying a price for it. Because intellect, if I ask you a simple question, uh, Russell, you want your intellect to be sharp or dull? Sharp. Sharp. So that's a common choice. So this means it's a cutting knife, it's a cutting instrument or it's like a knife. The sharper it is, the better it is. The sharper it is, the better you survive in this world. Now you have a knife in your hand. If you want to cut something, it's great. But now let's say you want to stitch something, but all you have is a knife. If you stitch your clothes with knife, it looks like a lot of people are doing that right now because I see everybody's pants are torn so badly, they must be stitching with their knives. Probably they try to don their pants with a knife and you see the consequence, it's become a fashion <laughs> So right now, what you see as human societies and individual experiences of life is just this. They are trying to do everything with one instrument called intellect. No, there are other dimensions of intelligence. When I say other dimensions of intelligence, it would take time to explore these things. So to put it very simply, if you... Uh, what did you have for breakfast, huh? Porridge. By oatmeal in American. <laughs> so you eat some oats. Oats don't look like you, smell like you, feel like you, nothing but it goes into your stomach and there is an intelligence here in your gut which transforms oat, this uh, little bit of oats into a human mechanism. When I say human mechanism, I'm talking about the most complex machine on the planet. The most complex creation on this planet is human mechanism. With what? With American oats you manufacture an Englishman? How do you do this, huh? There is an intelligence here just in your gut, not in your head then in your gut that it has the intelligence to transform something that you put there into human mechanism. Isn't this absolutely phenomenally brilliant? Right here in your gut, not in your head. So in your head, we are thinking only thought is there. No, there is a whole dimensions of intelligence. So this is something that's gone unexplored. Here and there, a few people may touch it accidentally, but unfortunately, a systemic way of approaching this has been lost in the world. Mainly, uh, 
because of this form of education where intellect and thought process is everything. When you describe this thought process being everything, uh, this translates to my understanding to the prevalence of European imperialism and post-enlightenment rationalism, the ideas that have led to individualism and of course the science revolution and all its many benefits which we have spent some time exploring. These deeper anatomical and biochemical intelligences that you refer to that are indeed capable of turning American oats into the finest Englishman or can work can I their magic. Finest? <laughs> Please, I, I can add adjectives as I choose or a, a, or a delightful Indian man. Uh, the, these deep intelligences uh, have been somewhat foregone, foreclosed against. And my my earlier point about a sort of an exploration of anthropological origins is not about a nostalgia, but rather a regard for the template. And I would I would say that it's correlative with diet. For example, eating sugar in large quantities has obvious consequences because we are not evolved to eat large quantities of sugar. Perhaps with the unlocking of these deeper intelligences that you remarked that we have somewhat forgotten rather than never understood, perhaps a return to a kind of an anthropological state that facilitates access to these intelligence is what's required. Although I warrant you, my interest is somewhat in the creation of social systems that bring about mass enlightenment but I, I recognize that individual focus must remain my priority uh, so so i suppose my question Sagaru, is where do you think the uh, access point to this deeper intelligence is do you think it like you know i've heard you i've read in your book in fact about you how you speak about the deep intelligence in nature how we forego these deep intelligence this deep intelligence that's at work in our anatomy in the complex mechanism of humanity or elsewhere in the biochemical systems that we inhabit, we forego it for the construct of memory-based, egoic, centralised, individualistic intelligence. How do we make this frequency transition? How do we escape the colonialism, not only of geographical territory, but psychological territory? See, uh, if somebody knocks on your door right now, when would you go and open the door with a knife in your hand? Usually Thursdays. You do it all the time. <laughs> that's because not too many guns in England, huh? unlike <laughs> America. <laughs> in Tennessee, nobody uses a knife, everybody has a gun, okay? <laughs> anyway, you will go to the door with a knife in your hand only when you feel threatened. Right now, isn't this the way we are approaching everybody and everything in the world, that we approach everything with the knife that we have in the form of an intellect? That means we are always feeling threatened because our idea of individual existence has become like a... like a concrete block. It's a absolute by itself. What is me is not absolute because if not, if you don't understand any other higher dimensions of consciousness or whatever, at least we are all breathing. That means, for you to exist, you must be in touch with this bubble of atmosphere. You don't know where your lungs are, just one part is here, rest is all over the place. We started a whole movement like this, where I made people sit down under trees and make them breathe in a certain way as a spiritual process and make them experience that what you exhale, the trees are inhaling, what the trees are exhaling, you are inhaling. Once they realized, a part of their lungs are hanging out there, 
Oh my god, we started a movement called Project Green Hands. And since then, they've not been able to stop planting trees. They've planted over... today, over a hundred thousand... I'm sorry, uh, what is this? Eleven... Over fifty million... Over fifty million trees in these last eighteen years. You can't stop them now because their lungs is hanging out there. So I'm saying intelligence is of various levels. Survival intelligence is intellect. Without intellect, you cannot survive in this world. We have made this so big in our life that survival is a great challenge. Survival is not a great challenge. When an ant is able to survive, when a bee is able to survive, when a grasshopper is able to survive, with such a big brain, survival should not be a problem. But our problem is this, because we go by the intellect, and the intellect can only think logically, and logic can exist only between two things. So. Always, life is happening by comparison. I want to survive, not the... my survival is not important. I want to survive like somebody else. Once this happens, the madness is gone. So all the time, it's in a survival mode. The idea of moving into an affluent state of existence is to be free of survival process, so that you could... your genius could unfold, you could create something wonderful. This is why... An individual person or a society or a nation works for uh, affluence. But affluent nations are more in survival mode, more in fear mode than any other country or any other society in the world. Actually, poorer societies are much more joyful, much more relaxed than affluent societies because by fixing the outside, you can't fix the inside. This must be clearly understood. It is important. It is very important to understand that human experience is essentially caused from within, never from outside. Outside may be a stimulus. If you react to it, yes, outside becomes the basis of your experience. If you respond to it, inside becomes the basis of your experience. Your ability to respond determ determines your ability to able to create the experience that you want. Right now, Everybody is going into all kinds of things, particularly chemical usage is increasing in a huge way. Because you're talking about anthropological and, uh, you know, biochemical stuff, right now biochemical is not important. Seventy percent of the American population, which is the most affluent country in the world right now, we work for affluence because in the initial stages when a society or an individual person is poor, what affluence means is a choice of nourishment. And once that is taken care of, what it means is choice of lifestyles. So people who have the maximum choice of nourishment and maximum choice of lifestyles, seventy percent of them are on prescription medication. Remaining thirty percent, of course, buying it off the back streets. When seventy percent, right now, if you... when the election comes, what is everybody talking about? Healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. In an affluent nation where people can choose to eat what they want and live the way they want, why are we talking so much healthcare? 3.2 trillion dollars worth of healthcare is bigger than India's economy, all right? We have four times your population. Why such a thing has happened is simply because you are not understanding human experience is caused from within, not by fixing the outside. You fix the outside as much as you want. If you look at how we were hundred years ago, how we were, and how we are today in terms of our physical convenience and comforts, we are another world altogether, totally. 
In spite of that, are people any happier? No, they're more neurotic than any time before. This is happening simply because we are not understanding human experience happens from within. The seat of your experience is within you, but if you don't take charge of that, then you try to fix the entire world the way you want. In this, all that happens is destruction because I want it one way, you want it another way, some other guy wants it another way, then all that we have is a fight. Continuously we've been fighting. After World War uh, One, let's, let's look at the history, only one century. Let's not go further back, it's too ugly. We fought World War One, and then we decided all this, uh, whatever the United Nations and those basic for formats started arising. What was the idea? That we should never again fight a war. Well, within another twenty years, again, World War Two. then we decided we will never fight. But since then, how many wars have happened? Simply because we are thinking human well-being is in fixing the outside. No, outside will create comfort, outside will create convenience. Human well-being will never happen from outside. And this chemical usage, whether it is prescribed pharmaceuticals, or uh, chemicals in the agriculture, chemicals... Uh, you know, you want to be peaceful, you need a chemical, you want to be joyful, you need a chemical, you want to be ecstatic, you know, there is ecstasy. Everybody is using chemicals. I will tell you this, mark my words now, if ninety percent of the human population starts using chemicals to come to a certain experience within themselves, the next generation that we produce will be less than us. That is a crime against humanity. The next generation that we produce must be at least one step better than us. Only then we are moving forward. Otherwise, we are taking the whole evolutionary system backwards. It's beginning to happen, not in the scale that people notice and get alarmed, but it is beginning to happen significantly because there is enough scientific studies to show this, that chemical usage definitely degrades a human being at a certain level, that the next generation will suffer immensely, which is happening. The previous generations, whatever they did, their alcohol abuse and stuff is playing out today in today's generation. Today's generation is doing it ten times more than the previous generation. This will play out in the next generation. So I'm saying, this is not just about me and you. This is about humanity as a whole. This is our time on the planet. What are we going to do with our time on the planet? Because before you were born, you were dead for a long time. After you were dead, you will be dead for a very long time. We are alive just for a little bit of time. In this time, should we practice life or death? This is the question. Because life is such a brief happening, death is such a long thing. It is literally an eternal thing, it's forever, those who died, died forever. Those who are living just are alive for a little bit of time. In this, there is a lot of intoxication because, see right now, even doctors are saying minimum eight hours you must sleep. Another one or two hours goes in consuming food, toilet, bath, this, that. So. And uh, another two hours go in this and that. I'm saying about twelve hours in a day go in maintenance of this self, physical self. If you have an automobile which needs service fifteen days of the month, is it a great automobile or is it a nuisance? If it needs service once in three months, all right. 
but fifteen days, half the time it's under service, you have to be under it, not in it, then this is not a good thing to have. Right now, unfortunately, human beings are moving in this direction because on top of it, they're uh, intoxicated. See, I'm not against intoxication, I'm for intoxication. Look at my eyes, I'm always stoned. But why are you taking chemicals from outside when the most sophisticated and complex chemical factory on the planet is here? This is the most ke complex chemical factory. Why are you not able to manage this well? This is the question. So today we have conducted you know, some universities, top universities have conducted, uh, uh, you know, like studies on a simple practice, a twenty-one minute practice. What they are saying is, in twenty-one minutes of practice, up to ninety days if you practice, the BDNF factors that the brain-derived neurotropic factors are nearly three times higher, three hundred percent higher, which decides your moods and how you experience life. There is something called as endocannabinoids, that is, your system is generating cannabinoid uh, stuff. This study also is very uh, keyhole kind of study, they're only looking at that aspect. There are many other aspects to that, which today modern science has not done enough study on this. But essentially, these endocannabinoids decide whether you're well and joyful, or you're depressed and anxious and whatever else, because the chemistry in the body is the basis of your experience. So question is only, are you a great CEO of this chemical factory or are you a lousy CEO of this chemical factory? That's all it is. Why are we not addressing that? We are trying to fix the whole world, the whole planet, we want to turn it upside down for human happiness. All the ecological damage is only a consequence of in pursuit of happiness, isn't it? I believe that to be true. However, when you say that um, that seventy percent of Americans are getting some sort of pharmaceutical aid, whether that's prescribed or illicit, it seems to me to not be a coincidence that this is the most economically advanced culture. It seems to me not to be a coincidence that this isn't a culture without ideologies or philosophies. It's one with a deeply entrenched, financially supported, culturally enforced, propaganda illuminated ideology of deep, deep capitalist consumerism. Whilst this might be Thanksgiving for some, it's Black Friday for others. And the ideology of consumerism is more and more supported. And I believe and agree with you that we may be the CEOs of our own uh, narcotic or chemical factories. But we're, individuals are not living in uh, a neutral culture. We're living in a culture that has certain aims and intentions for its populace. And the statistics that you cite, Sadhguru, for me, make it very, very clear what the intentions of this culture are. And again, whilst I acknowledge the only real, um, the only role I can meaningfully conduct is my own own evolution, my own awakening, and hope that that has an environmental benefits, please God. I feel that it is negligent not to observe the cultural impact of ideologies that are making drug addicts, that are manufacturing mental illness, that these conditions don't occur in isolation. They occur at epidemic levels because of broken ideologies, which are themselves a reflection and manifestation of these unconscious appetites that 
we have yet to process on a cultural level and that we are discussing how to process on an individual level? I would say all ideologies are uh, spirituality gone off track, derailed. Because, let's see it this way, there are two uh, fundamental ideologies because you took up this commercialism that's uh, going on now. So there is a capitalistic way of doing things which is essentially manufacturing more, consuming more, whatever. Another is a communist philosophy of sharing and, you know, making it a community. Where does this come from? So capitalism or this consumerism as we call it today is coming from more, more and more. Well, that is a spiritual aspect, but gone bad, it's gotten derailed. A train is good when it's on the track, when it goes off the rails, it's a disaster. So, uh, this is a disaster because more, more and more is human consciousness because human being doesn't want to be contained, he wants to be everything. But now we are going in installments. If you want to become infinite, can you approach it in installments? That's a question. You want to become infinite, can you count one, two, three, four, five, six and say one day I'm infinite? No, all you will become is endless counting. This is consumerism. You're becoming an endless counting. How much ever you count, what you were... At one time you were counting uh, ten dollars at ten pounds was a great amount of income. Today you may be saying ten billion, but it doesn't mean anything actually. So people suffering is not related to how much they have. It is the fundamental thing about wanting to be more. Well, if I have to use an analogy, let us say you have two billion dollars, I'm assuming, okay? And you Roughly lost that. one billion dollars, you will be miserable. But somebody else in a remote society has two cows, that's all he has, and he lost one cow. He will also be equally miserable, not less miserable, all right? But you can... in the marketplace, you cannot compare one billion dollars to one cow. But in human experience, that's how it is. So the more on the outside or less on the outside doesn't really make a difference except in social situations. Because... because you particularly said about the impact of the society upon the individual human being, society writing the prescription how you should live, that is the first thing I addressed, that is human consciousness should shape the society. Society should not shape the individual human consciousness. Right now, the only value that you have is economics. Nobody is even discussing whether even in England, they're only talking economy these days <laughs> You talk to an old grandmother, she also talks economy. You talk to a fifteen-year-old boy, he also talks economy. In between, everybody else's economy. Everybody have become slaves of the economic engine. So, economy is essentially a glorified version of survival process, all right? A man went out and bought a bag, you know, a bag full of fish home, that was his survival at one time. But now it's become glorified, man goes to the stock market and does complex things and comes home with the same things or not even that, all right? So, virtual fish maybe he's... he's coming home with, we don't know what he's coming home with. But essentially, it's survival process glorified and spread across the world. The complexity of transactions has led to this, but our problem is, when something starts rolling, 
we don't have a steering wheel in our hands. The right now, the economic condition in the world is, everybody has got their leg pressed on the throttle. Nobody has the steering wheel. Nobody has the steering wheel. Who's got the steering wheel? It's simply hurtling down. Only virus has brought some sense and slowness breaks on the economy. This is the time to reorganize ourselves, so at least the machine is running slow. This is the time to rethink many things, but I don't know if we will do that. We may go back at it with vengeance once the virus is done <laughs> So essentially, wanting to be more is the basis of capitalism. What is the basis of communism? That is also the same thing. What you think is well-being for you, you want it to spread to everybody else. Maybe not in terms of material, uh, material substances, but in terms of well-being as a commune, as a community, as a communism, essentially means we all share and live. But unfortunately, that also went off the rails because those who had nothing to share wanted to share. Those who had something to share didn't want to share. It doesn't work like that. When something... when someone has a lot and he wants to share, it'll become a beautiful process. Well, uh, someone who has nothing to share, he wants to share, it'll become ugly. Unfortunately, that's what happened to the communism in the world. Poorest of the people went for communist philosophies. The richest in the world should have gone. Then it would have been a totally different world altogether. So both of them are only talking about inclusion. But how? Inclusion happens in many different ways. If it finds a simple, basic, physical expression, this longing to expand will find the expansion in the form of sexuality. What sexuality means is, some... something or somebody who is not a part of you, you're trying to make them a part of you. It seems to work for a few minutes and then falls apart. If it finds an emotional expression, we call it love. That means you're using your emotion to include somebody who is not a part of you as yourself, expansion. If it finds a mental expression, we call this ambition, conquest, or maybe in today's world, just shopping. Because no more people are thinking of uh, going and conquering the world, they are thinking in terms of going to either to the local mall or to the stock market or somewhere else and they're shopping all the time. Shopping is the way to conquest right now. In some way, they're shopping one way or the other at different levels. But essentially, your longing is to become more than what you are right now. If it finds a conscious expression, then we call it yoga. Unfortunately, the word yoga has gotten so twisted out in the Western societies, people think doing or practicing yoga means you must look like a leftover noodle. This is... yoga is not about twisting and turning. The word yoga means union. How can union happen? What union are we talking about? As I said, union of bodies is called sexuality, union of emotions is called as love, union of the material into you, is called as, uh, you know, materialism. Union means this. Your idea of you being an individual is your idea. As we already went through, to be alive, you have to breathe. You have to eat, you have to drink. The very body that you carry is just a piece of the planet. The soil that you walk upon and the body that you live in are not two different things. It's the same thing. Most people get this only when they're buried. Till then, they don't get it. 
But if you get it right now, it'll be wonderful because what is it that you're calling as myself? Your physical body, every cell in this body, every atom in this body is borrowed from this planet. What you think is your psychological structure is all heap of impressions that you have gathered. So everything that you know as myself is a collage of things, but still, isn't there you in your experience? There is you. If you right now open your eyes and look, you're seeing the world. But if you close your eyes, even if you're not seeing the world, you still exist. You do not exist only because you see, hear, smell and taste. Even if you don't, you still exist. You're fast asleep, you're unconscious, but still you exist. So, there is something that you call as myself. Beyond your personality, beyond your physical and psychological framework, there is something that is me. I would call that life. Let's call it life. So right now your experience of life is like this. Uh, Russ, did you blow uh, soap bubbles when you were young at least? Yes. You did. <laughs> I don't know, you got probably this kind of bubble. I got this bubble, huh? I'm a West Ham supporter. Bubbles is uh, the sort of motif of the football club that I support. I'm forever blowing bubbles. It's a very significant piece of uh, cultural architecture for West Ham United Football Club, which is this particular tattoo. Uh, the One of the great icons of my religion uh, is uh, West Ham United forever blowing bubbles, ephemeral, beautiful bubbles. <laughs> what club are you, huh? It's West Ham. Oh, West Ham, okay. I've been working with Everton for some time now in the past. Well, it's beginning <laughs> to show. <laughs> now they're doing well. Huh? <laughs> yeah, they, that is it. Yeah, they had a very good start to the season. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so this is the problem. My bubble is bigger than your bubble. That's the problem. Bubble is not the problem. The problem is I want my bubble to be bigger than yours. That creates a problem. Now, what we need to understand is, let's say both of us blew bubbles and my bubble is floating here, yours is floating here. You said, this is my bubble, that is your bubble. Let's say they went poop. Now you don't say, this is my air, that is my... your air, isn't it? The bubble contained the same air. In terms of life, this is a living cosmos. It's a great privilege that life has allowed us individual experience, individual perceptions, individual existence, though we... everything that we have, there is nothing individual about it. There is nothing individual about this body, though on the surface it is because it's the same soil. There is nothing individual about the impressions we have taken in. There is nothing individual about the life that we are. But it's the magnanimity of life that it's given us an individual experience. This is not a time to be depressed or anxious and being worried about something. This is the greatest phenomena happening to you called life. Though there is nothing individual about you, there is a whole individual experience, as if you're real and absolute. But how many countless number of people have lived on this planet before you and me? Where are they, huh? They just don't exist. But I'm telling you, they were also smart men like you and me. They also thought it's all about them. But where are they? Gone? No footprint anywhere? A few people have been written about, they will also be forgotten after some time, all right? 
So I'm saying our existence here is very much like a soap bubble. I'm glad your football club, West Ham, has this soap bubble <laughs> mascot <laughs> because they know you may be a champion today and tomorrow it could bust. All right? Yeah. It's, it's the way you kick the ball right now. Right now, everybody is complaining about this pandemic, pandemic, oh, the greatest difficulty has come to our generation. They've just forgotten what the pre previous generations have gone through. While you're in London, if there are still some old people alive, you just ask them, what was 1942 for them? All right? Everything was flattened, their lives were like that. If they as much as lit a cigarette on the street, their own soldiers would shoot them dead. When there was a blackout, I'm saying. <laughs> so from that, they're just asking you stay home. Not in a prison, your home. Wear a mask if you come out. No, we want freedom. We've come to this place because we've become so frivolous. Our comforts and our conveniences, instead of being a platform for our creativity, for our overflow of our genius, we are becoming so frivolous and we will not be able to live. I was just talking to a group of business people in uh, Chennai. I, was I just looked at them and said, see, suppose you're walking on the streets of Chennai. A tiger came. You know, in India these things can happen. <laughs> Still. <laughs> a tiger came on the street. How many of you can just run up, climb a tree, sit there and enjoy the wildlife? How many? No. Most of you will fall all over the place before the tiger eats you. You will fall all over the place, break your bones. Only those few guys who are doing menial jobs on the street, they will climb up, sit there and you becoming a breakfast. I'm saying, what has comfort and convenience done to you? You becoming totally disabled. We are disabling ourselves with technology, comfort and convenience. No, technology is about enabling ourselves, not about disabling ourselves. Development, uh, civilization, economic well-being, all are about enabling ourselves, but we are disabling ourselves. Mm. Sadhguru, do you want to... Is there any of your many initiatives that you would like to point towards or highlight before we conclude? Uh, about the initiative, there are many initiatives because uh, people think I'm crazy that I'm involved in so many projects, which some of them are global proportions, some are local. Uh, I don't want to talk about all of them. Essentially, my project is life. When I say life, it involves nourishment, it involves health, it involves education, it definitely involves environment. So this is the way. So, the last thing I said is environment, so let me say this because this is one of the biggest concerns in the world right now. Inner ecology and external ecology both are in serious condition, <laughs> all right? About the world, about the planet, because this is the platform upon which we exist, this is our very body out there. What is the condition of this? The soil that we walk upon, instead of talking about various things, thirty-nine inches is the average topsoil on the planet. These thirty-nine inches of topsoil is the host for over eighty-five percent of all life, from microbial life to human life. This is the platform. But today they are saying that forty-two percent of the global soil is in a very depreciated condition. 
And people, some of the studies showing that we have topsoil for another sixty years of agriculture. After that, we don't have topsoil. So what is happening to our topsoil? Are they taking it away to Mars? Are they taking it and dumping it on the moon? No. The only thing that's happening is, soil is becoming sand. Why? There is not enough organic material in the soil. Organic material can enter the soil only through two... two means. That is, the green litter from the trees and the animal waste. This is the only way organic material will get back. And also, the, the death of the generations of animals and humans and everything gets back into the soil. Human beings are even refusing to get back after they die because today they're being buried in concrete silos, all right? This is the worst thing to do. At least if you've not done anything eco-friendly, at least when you die, you must get back to the soil. But even there, they're putting them in aluminum boxes and burying in a concrete silo. What has happened to us? This is not civilization, this is just lack of basic sense anyway. To enrich the soil, you need substantial green litter and animal waste. Animals are all living in farms, they are not ranging, so their waste is not going to the land. And the number of trees that we have removed on this planet is significant. Let me talk about a specific project. Out of many things we are doing, one thing that we are doing is called as Kaveri Calling. There is a river Kaveri, which is the lifeline for southern India. Three states, their entire life is dependent upon it. The delta region of Kaveri was considered to be the world's most fertile region on the planet. It's the most fertile region. In this area, culturally, people don't refer to soil as soil, they call it gold. If you show them soil, they used to say this is gold, because they were growing four crops out of uh, this soil every year. Annually, they were growing four crops. And they've been farming this land for over twelve thousand years. The longest agricultural history on the planet is in the Kaveri Basin. It's over twelve thousand years they've been farming. This region, the Kaveri Basin, accounts for eighty-three thousand square kilometers. In the last seventy years, we have removed eighty-seven percent of the green cover on this planet, on this uh, Kaveri Basin. This Kaveri River, we must understand in India, in a tropical nation, this is true for all tropical nations. See, for example, in temperate climates, most of your European rivers or American rivers are flowing because of the melting ice, the glacial ice is melting, and that's how the rivers are flowing. But in India, the only source of water is monsoon. Rivers, ponds, lakes, wells are not sources of water, they are only destinations. In the last hundred years, the records show the volume of water coming down in a monsoon is just the same as it was hundred years ago. Even today, even in the last year, actually it's been percentage-wise a little more than what is the hundred-year average. So the volume of water coming down is same, but the period in which it's coming down has shrunk. When I was a child, the monsoons used to last up to hundred and twenty-five to hundred and forty days. Today the monsoons are happening within forty to seventy-five days but the same volume of water. That means the rains are torrential, it is not spread out, it is just pouring down many times like a cloudburst. You keep hearing on the news how Mumbai is submerged, Chennai is submerged, every other day, every other year there is flood in almost all these cities, because one day, about three years ago, one meter of rain happened in one afternoon in Mumbai. This is literally cloud falling down from the sky. 
So this is happening because there is not enough green cover. There is something called as transpiration when there is a tree cover, which makes sure the cloud is regulated and water, the rainwater comes down in a regulated manner. Because we have farmed the entire nation across from north to south, entire nation has been under the plough. So there are not enough trees, so the water is coming down very significantly in a short amount of time, which is taking away the topsoil in a big way. And as you know, over 300,000 farmers have committed suicide in the last 20 years. We are particularly working in one area called Abatmal, which is known as the suicide capital of the world. In the last 18 months, there's not been a single suicide because these 9,340 families which are there, for every one of them, we have their phone numbers, we have a volunteer supporting them and working with them in terms of doing tree-based agriculture. But that's been done much more successfully in the last 22 years in the Kaveri Basin, where the farmer's income goes up by 300 to 800 percent in five to seven years' time. So essentially, this is an... this is an enterprise of marrying ecology and economy, because 84 percent of the land is held by the farmer. If you do not involve him, there is not going to be any success. You can only involve him if you show him an economic possibility, otherwise he is not going to come in. So this is what Kaveri thing is, over hundred thousand farmers have today benefited from this. In the last seven years, I battled with state governments and the federal government to change the policies. There are many aspects, I don't want to go into that. Today, the policy document, 760-page policy document that we produced has become the recommended policy for all the twenty-eight states. The federal government has given it as a recommendation. Apart from that, for example, just one I will tell you the in terms of policy. In India, if you grow a tree and in your... in your own land, and if you cut it for your own use someday, you could be arrested by the police. And activists will come and protest in front of your land. These activists have no land, no work, no anything to do in their life, all they have is activism. They don't understand the farmer's economy is dependent on various things. When his crop fails, he wants to cut one tree. But now there are no trees in the last forty years on the farms because nobody wants this nuisance of a tree. We change this now. Today, the central government has set up a digital platform where you can go... grow trees on your land, register the trees that are growing in your land, cut it according to your needs, sell it on the digital platform, transport it anywhere you want in the country, you can export it if you wish. This policy change we brought about. There was one more challenge, that is when we move into tree-based agriculture, definitely the soil quality improves significantly within two to three years' time, and the nutritional value of the food improves very significantly. But the most important thing is, the water tables have come up so significantly, way beyond whatever the scientific estimates were there, way beyond that the water tables have come up. But there was a problem, that is, for first three years, there was a little loss of revenue for the farmer. So we worked with the state governments. Now, state governments have announced a subsidy, growth-based su subsidy for the trees. If you put a... Uh, plant a tree in your land, they are giving you a subsidy year on year for four years, so that that little loss of revenue that you have is made up, but from fifth year onwards, his income is much bigger than what it was uh, four years ago. So. Without these policy changes, we couldn't have done that. This took seven years of work to make these policy changes. 
Now we are going full on to plant 2.42 billion trees in these 83,000 square kilometers. If we plant these trees now in the next six years, in twelve years' time, it will sequester... it will be sequestering nine to twelve trillion liters of water. The promise that the Indian government has made in the Paris Accord, whatever the promise that they have made, nearly eight to twelve percent of the carbon sink can be achieved just by this one project. Looking at this, now the central government has made uh, detailed project reports for thirteen rivers in a similar fashion. But this can only work if you engage the farmer, build the trust with the farmer, otherwise he is not going to change his crop pattern unless you show him. So right now, this is the work that's going on on the ground. In spite of this virus situation, this year our volunteers have been on the ground, risking their lives. These are all young people who have just come without any income, no salaries are paid for them, we just give them food and transport, that's all. They've... I told them, give three years of your life, we will change this situation. And I told them, the only qualification for you is, uh, do not ask what about me for three years, we will revive this river. And this revival of this river means, it is... it is taking care of 5.2 million farmers and a huge population along with that. That sounds like a fantastic project. I'm really glad that I asked. It was a very, very complex but clear piece of philanthropic work. I'm really grateful to you, Sagaru, for explaining that to me. I uh, have to uh, wrap up this podcast now. Um, and I look forward very much to speaking to you again. And I found it illuminating, educating, speaking with you. Thank you so much for conveying such a wealth of information in such a clear way, particularly that last bit. That was extraordinary. Sadhguru, thank you very much. Let's make it happen. Huh? I'll speak to you again. Cheers. Well, that was Sadhguru. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you uh, for joining us. There's something else. Oh, I wanted to thank all the volunteers that run our uh, emails and stuff for us. What are their names? Come on, remind me. I know there's Angie, I know. I love I love her. We've got, um, we've got Angie, Tony. Uh-huh. Tony, Nick, I know Tony. Claire, love her. And who? And Janine. Was there another one, Janine, as well? Is there any more? That's them. Just, yeah, Janine. We should recruit more. What about that dude from Sheffield? Because Chris dropped out. Oh, he's called Andy. <laughs> Chris, when did you become Andy? Anyway, you can see how much we value and respect you. I do value you and respect you, and I love you. I think volunteering is the future. Sadhguru's got nine million, but I wouldn't change any one of you for for that entire nine million. Although I wouldn't mind meeting one or two of them before we do the transfer family transfer thank you Sagaru, for that wonderful episode thank you Demaya and Django and Charchi and everyone that's worked on the show you bear too uh, and thanks for all the volunteers and people that work with us to make this happen that's Under the Skin from Luminary